Okay, so I'm, I'm Neil, I'm one of the deacons at Servants Church. I'm going to be sharing from Luke 1. And it's the first of our Christmas teachings. We're going to have three. This is the first teaching. So we're going to read from verse 26 through to verse 38 of Luke chapter 1. So follow along as I read. We all there, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favoured one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Father, we ask for your grace this morning. Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit. Lord, that you would fill us afresh. And Lord, help us to behold more of our Saviour Jesus. Lord, open our eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ, that we may come and behold him. Lord, that we may adore him in our hearts, that we may worship him. And Lord, help me by your spirit to speak your word, to share from this passage today. Lord, that your word might be planted in our hearts and bear fruit for your kingdom. And Father, I ask this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we see in Luke this, this wonderful true account. This wonderful true account of the announcement and birth of Jesus Christ. The long-awaited Messiah who would bring salvation to his people. So just a bit of background in Luke chapter 1. We come to a point in Israel's history where God has been silent for over 400 years. Imagine that. No word of revelation. No word from God. And the last time God spoke, we see in the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. And God ended this, his account with a prophecy of the one who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. That was John the Baptist, we all know. But we come to Luke chapter 1, and it was a, really quite a dark time for Israel. At Herod, who was the puppet king, ruling under the authority of the Roman Empire. And the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they weren't leading or shepherding the people as they were supposed to. But we read earlier in chapter 1 of a righteous elderly couple, Zacharias, a Levite priest. 
and his wife Elizabeth and they served God faithfully in Jerusalem and the angel Gabriel is sent by God the divine messenger breaks this 400 years of silence to herald the miraculous news to Zacharias that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son and she was barren she was elderly but that she would bear a son and call him John so we start in Luke with a an angel sent to pronounce the fulfillment of a promise that's the first thing I want us to see and we come to verse 26 and we're six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy and Gabriel is sent again by God to be the herald of another revelation even more amazing than the first so let's read 26 again now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth so we're introduced to Gabriel this divine messenger in verse 19 we learn Gabriel is one who stands in the presence of God stands in the very presence of almighty God and we first read about this angel in Daniel who was the interpreter of his dreams and that's what Gabriel did he brought forth divine revelation so we see we see again he comes first to Zacharias and the second time he comes he doesn't go to Jerusalem he comes this time to an obscure town in Galilee called Nazareth an insignificant place but he comes to bring forth revelation to a young Hebrew woman a virgin we read in verse 27 betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph Joseph was of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary so here was Mary or Mariam in the in the Hebrew just a teenager likely just a teenager at this point and she was betrothed to young Joseph and Joseph was a descendant of the house of David and we'll come to why that's significant in a bit but we can think of betrothal as engagement it's, it's more formal it's legally binding as well it's a legally binding relationship it lasted for about one year and after that period there was a wedding feast for seven days and we think in John chapter 2 of the wedding of Cana and after seven days the wedding was um, the marriage was consummated so Mary was in this betrothal period and of course she was a virgin she was sexually pure and do you see how that's emphasized by Luke it's twice mentioned before her name is even given a virgin whose name was Mary it's overstated and the reason why is because it's the premise of everything that follows it's very important and we're going to get into that today so in verse 28 and having come in the angel said to her rejoice highly favored one the Lord is with you blessed are you among women so Gabriel comes in and by the way I don't know how an angel comes in to your home an archangel came into the home of Mary but he immediately greets Mary with this divine blessing doesn't he the angel literally says hail graced one or hail favored one the Lord is with you but notice before the blessing there's no commendation of Mary nothing to say she was particularly righteous or, or faithful simply that she was blessed among women and we know Zacharias and Elizabeth they were commended by Luke the author they say uh, of, of those he said they are righteous in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly it's a great commendation but not so with Mary and I think that's intentional I think that tells us that there was nothing to commend the mother of Jesus 
Aaron, my seven-year-old son, he asked yesterday, why did God choose Mary? I was like, that's a really good question. <laughs> we both looked at him. I was like, wow. And I'm gonna t- I'll tell you what I told him. Grace. It was grace. It was by God's grace that Mary was highly favoured and blessed among women. And it had to be God's grace because Mary was like us. Those who receive God's divine grace have one thing in common. We're all sinners. We need God's grace. As was Mary, albeit she was a believing sinner. And we see her faith and her humility later on in this passage. But I only mention that because I want us to see... Mary for who she really was. She was a recipient of divine grace. And Mary shouldn't be reverenced or idolised in any way. She's not the bestower or the dispenser of grace, as some would claim. God alone dispenses grace to the sinner. Amen. Amen. Therefore rejoice, highly favoured one. The Lord is with you. But of course God would dispense grace to Mary the likes of which no other person has experienced. This term highly favoured, it's only used in one other place in the New Testament. And it's in Ephesians chapter 1. Where Paul applies it to all believers. It should be on the screen. He says, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted. Same word, in the beloved. So Paul's speaking about how we are highly favoured in Christ. Through our position in Christ, we are highly favoured as recipients of bestowed grace. So in verse 29, we see when Mary saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Mary was troubled. Of course she was troubled. She was distressed. She was anxious. An archangel that dwells in the presence of God was standing in her house. But it wasn't his appearance that troubled her. It was what he said. And maybe Mary found it hard to fathom why God had brought such divine favour and grace to her home that day. But we see this distress was met with reassurance. In verse 30, the angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. Mary, don't be afraid. And Jesus said that time and time again to his disciples, didn't he? Don't be afraid, it is I. Fear not. And there was no cause to fear the news the angel was about to deliver. There was no reason for Mary to be afraid or or troubled because it was the news of a divine conception we see in verse 31 behold behold Mary listen pay attention to what I'm about to say you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus so Mary finds out what this grace and favour would be the promise of a son and Gabriel tells the says the name of the child to be born would be Jesus and that name was chosen by God and that's very important we're going to look at that name in a bit and we've heard this account told many times I'm sure I have and I had to read this as if I was reading it for the first time in preparing it it's easy to gloss over the actual context of what we're reading here um, the significance so Mary and Joseph they were in a, a betrothal period Mary was a virgin she was sexually pure as I said and in Matthew we read that Joseph didn't know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and we've got several miraculous accounts in scripture haven't we of where God opened the womb of a barren woman woman who couldn't conceive naturally we have Sarah, Rebecca um, 
Hannah, mother of Samuel. We have Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist. All women and, and their offspring who were instrumental in God's plan, God's redemptive purpose. But that a virgin would conceive, this had never happened. This was unimaginable, unthinkable. It didn't make sense that a virgin would conceive and give birth. Except for the fact that God had declared it to be so in his word. Hundreds of years before. And in fact Gabriel is pronouncing the fulfilment of a prophecy. And that's the theme I wanted to look at today. How the holy child was foretold. And you should see on your um, handouts how that's broken down. We're going to look at Isaiah. Um, There's a theme, a prophetic theme, uh, or a thread, you could say, running all the way through the book of Isaiah. And we see how how God declared it through his prophets. Those who were inspired by God to proclaim what God himself had purposed. The Lord says in Isaiah 46, verse 9, should be on the slides. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And we see the book of Isaiah is rich with messianic prophecy. Prophecies of the Messiah. It's one of the most quoted books. One of the most quoted prophets of the New Testament writers. And I wanted to digress slightly and look at this prophetic theme or thread running all the way through Isaiah, and I won't take too long to do that, but hopefully it will help us put the words of Gabriel into context. So in the very first chapter of Isaiah, we have a glimpse of God's redemptive purpose. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That's in the very first chapter. And then he points to a time of great hope, when his covenant promises will be fulfilled by a coming king, a holy seed. And we read in Isaiah 7, Chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And I've got the verse of Luke alongside that prophecy. And you can see, it's the same words, Gabriel's announcement. And Matthew confirms this prophecy. is a prediction of the virgin birth of the Messiah He says, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. So the appointed time of this prophecy had finally come. Gabriel was pronouncing the fulfillment of this word spoken through Isaiah. He's heralding the fulfillment. So the angel brings this revelation. He tells Mary who this child will be in verse 32 back in Luke he says you shall call his name Jesus he will be great and will be called the son of the highest so he would be the son of God so by saying Jesus would be the son of the highest the angel was saying basically that the son would be equal to the most high God That's the meaning. John the Baptist was previously called the prophet of the highest. But Gabriel here is saying Jesus would be the son of the highest. And he's set apart with this statement. Remember in John chapter 5 verse 18 the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. Because Jesus said that God was his father making himself equal with God. 
So to say someone was a son, especially in, this, in the Hebrew culture, was to signify equality. So with the words of Gabriel in mind, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. And you can keep one finger in your Bibles and flick between the two. Luke and Isaiah, we're going to be there quite a bit, but it's also on the screen as well. We see in verse 6 of chapter 9, Isaiah, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Isaiah continues his Emmanuel prophecy here, and he tells us the child to be born is a son to be given, and his name would be Mighty God. Emmanuel was to be the son of God. And the son would rule and discharge all of the great titles we see here. Wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Speaking of his, the splendour of his character and his divine office. And Gabriel continues, again back in Luke verse 32. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So he would be the son of God, but he'd also be the promised son of David. And we've been going through this quite a bit in Chronicles, haven't we? So it shouldn't be um, too new to you this morning. But we can compare this next verse. We can compare this passage in Luke to the next verse in Isaiah. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. So in line with this prophecy, the angel says the child would be the seed of David. Whose rule is everlasting over the house of Jacob. So Israel's future came over the whole house of Jacob. And we looked at this promise recently in Samuel the future hope of a perfectly righteous and just king. God's chosen king who would reign in righteousness. And this connection to David's throne, King David, is really important. And it's throughout the Old Testament we see how the hand of prophetic blessing rested on the house of David. From David's house or from David's family line would become, would become a man who would be the promised messianic hope. Who would be a light to the Jews and Gentiles. And we know that Mary knew these covenant promises. We see in her song of praise in verse 54 she declares. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Those are the words of Mary. So she knew the covenant promises of God. And remember... Gabriel adds the detail back in 27, how Joseph was of the house of David. And it's interesting we see how both Joseph and Mary's genealogies are included in two Gospels. Joseph's in Matthew, at the start of Matthew, and Mary is in chapter 3 of Luke. And they're purposely laid out for us. And maybe some of you here, you've worked out your family tree before. I know I have. And it can be uh, quite a task. But in the Hebrew culture especially, it was very important that you could trace your family lineage all the way back to one of the 12 tribes so you could prove your identity, you could prove your, your ancestry, that your, that, you, that, it, that your ancestry was legitimate. And in the genealogy of Matthew, we see that Joseph was also in the line of King David. 
In Luke's genealogy in chapter 3, we see Mary through her family is in the royal bloodline of David. So the blood right to the throne would be passed down to her offspring, David. So let's go back to this thread in Isaiah. From chapter 42, we see a series of passages or songs, really, about God's holy servant. And how God's holy servant is empowered by the Spirit to announce the good news of God's kingdom. And I'll just read one of these from Isaiah 42, um, the first four verses. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. So this servant sounds just like the messianic king of chapter 9, doesn't he? But when we get to chapter 53, we see the shocking way that this servant would usher in God's kingdom. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be a man of sorrows who would be cut off from the land of the living. His soul made an offering for sin. And then a few, late, a few verses later, we see he's alive. From verse 10, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labour of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And that's the testimony of Jesus Christ himself. His word declares who he says he is. And you remember in Isaiah 61, going right to the end of Isaiah, when Jesus was in the synagogue and he was handed the scroll of Isaiah and he stood up in the synagogue and he read from the scroll and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he declares the fulfillment of this prophecy of Isaiah. So we see... The holy child foretold as the promised king of Emmanuel, the great messianic hope, but then the crucified and risen saviour, king of Isaiah 53, who redeems and saves his people. But the theme I wanted to, to look at and just emphasise today that the fulfilment of prophecy should embolden our faith. We should look at the fulfilment of this revelation really with wonder. It should strengthen and undergird our faith. Remember Peter speaking about the prophets who prophesied of Jesus. They said, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, for us. This is what the prophecies are for, that our faith, that we would say these things. And with confidence, in our faith, we'd be emboldened to speak these truths ourselves. So, the holy child believed from verse 34, 38. Let's look at Mary's response. We see how Mary's faith was tested. Can you imagine the news and how Mary responded? She said in verse 34, How can this be since I do not know a man? This was a shocking revelation to Mary. This was shocking. We, we know she understood what the angel was implying because she affirms her virginity here, doesn't she? But she says, How can this be? How can this be? And it was a valid question. <laughs> How on earth can this, can this happen? But there was no doubting. There was no unbelief 
in Mary's response. And we know that because earlier Zacharias had doubted and the angel had struck him dumb for, unbelief, for, for his unbelief. But not so with Mary. How can this be? She simply couldn't comprehend what the angel was saying. But it's clear from her response and from what we read here that the conception of Jesus in her womb was owing to no man. God made sure that there would only be one virgin in the whole of human history that would conceive and bear a child. But this question of Mary, how, it kind of prepares the way for Gabriel's answer in verse 35. And that it's his words that actually draw us closer to the truth of the incarnation of, of Jesus. We see in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So whether you're a believer today or you're hearing this for the first time, the significance of this is really, really important to understand. What does it mean for us that Jesus the Messiah was born of a virgin? What does it mean for us? And studying this, it, it became really clear that having a right view of the incarnation hinges on the truth of the virgin birth. But we often don't maybe think about it. So I just wanted to unpack this a bit more. And it testifies to two key things, the virgin birth. It testifies to the holiness of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. And these are both fundamental Christian doctrines. They're central to the gospel. So we read, The power of the Most High shall overshadow Mary, and therefore... The Holy One who is to be born shall be called, not the Son of Joseph, but the Son of God. And I think of, there's so many adorable children in this church, but they're not holy. <laughs> they're not holy, they're great, but they're not holy, they're unholy, they're fallen like us, they need God's grace. Okay, but Jesus was the holy child. And he brings forth grace and truth. But let's say the simple truth of what Gabriel was saying. Mary asks how? And the answer in verse 35, the Holy Spirit. Mary says, how can this be? The angel says, God. You can break it down. <laughs> Simplify that. Answer of Gabriel's. God himself would create this child in the womb of Mary. The father says in Psalm 2, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus is uniquely God's son. And in Matthew's account we see the angel saying, For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, of God. And this phrase overshadow you is really interesting, quite an interesting phrase. We see back in, it literally means to cover with a cloud. And we can think of the tabernacle in the Old Testament in Exodus, um, where the, the cloud of God's glory uh, Shekinah glory covered the Holy of Holies but also in the New Testament the transfiguration of Jesus on, on the mountain when the three disciples were there and they were fearful and they were covered with a cloud and God spoke out of that cloud he said this is my beloved son hear him it's the same word and we see the Holy Spirit was instrumental all the way through the life and the ministry of Jesus right from his conception but that should make sense to us if we think about it remember the Holy Spirit was present at the beginning of creation 
when the world was without form and void, the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. And once again, he would be the agent of creation here. God would use him in the same way. So God's glorious presence was at work. Jesus was the holy child. And we see back in verse 31, the name Jesus, you should see it capitalised. You only say it a couple of times, normally in Luke. And that's significant because in the Old Testament, God's name, Jehovah or Yahweh in the Hebrew would be written as Lord, but capitalised in bold. And this signifies the covenant name of God. And the same significance is intended here. The holy child will be called Jesus. And Jesus, I don't know if you know, means the Lord saves. Or the Lord is salvation. Literally, Yeshua is salvation. And Yeshua in the English is Joshua. How we can understand the bit in the Greek we see it's Jesus, Jesus, with the same meaning. And this is the name that God chose. So when we speak that name, remember, God intended that name to carry what Jesus would fulfill in his ministry, his life, his saving purpose, Jesus. God is salvation. And remember in Matthew, when the angel appears to Joseph in a dream, the angel confirms this meaning. He will save his people from their sins. He was giving the, the meaning of the name. And God intended the name itself to remind us of his grace. But in Isaiah, the name given to the Holy Child isn't Jesus. It's Emmanuel. So that's the only difference we see. And that means God with us. So if Jesus speaks of his saving purpose, Emmanuel, God with us, speaks of how he would save us. That God would become flesh. And it's interesting how the two names go together. And Jesus himself, he speaks of his heavenly existence before his human birth. He, if you remember in John 17 verse 5, he prays to the Father and he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So in looking at the incarnation of Jesus, we have to first understand that the Son of God pre-existed. Jesus was the incarnation of the Divine Son. He pre-existed as one distinct person within the Godhead. And John's Gospel majors on this theme, the deity of Christ. And we've just been looking at it in, 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 in our home group and we've just came all the way through and we can see how John, the author of the Gospel, really brings this out, the deity of Christ. And we see John actually begins with a, a description of the Word, the Logos, another name for the Son of God, who existed with God at the beginning of creation. Through him all things were made. And then John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus left his divine office and he humbled himself as a man. He left the glory of heaven. And this is how we as believers connect with God, isn't it? Through the person of Jesus Christ. God incarnate, the word become flesh. We see the grace and the truth of God in the character of Christ. And the virgin birth supports all of this. It testifies to his holiness, to his divinity, to his 
sonship with the Father, but also to his humanity as well. And it's why Paul in Colossians can say, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So one divine person, fully God and fully man. But the virgin birth, it also testifies of the sufficiency of his sacrifice, the sinlessness of Christ. That Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit means that he had an incorruptible nature. His nature was untainted by sin. And this is also important to understand. It's central to the gospel. The sinlessness, the sinless sufficiency of Christ. And we know when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, it had a devastating effect, right? The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5.12, Through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So according to God's holy law, atonement for sin required an unblemished sacrifice. A bull or a lamb without defect was allowed to cover sin under the old covenant. But in Hebrews 9.14, we see that this was fulfilled in Jesus, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, who offered himself without blemish to God. So we know Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father. He was morally righteous in every way. But he also had a human nature that had not been corrupted by sin. Defiled by the effects of sin. And why is this important? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, it should be on the screen. He says that we are not redeemed, sorry, we are redeemed not of corruptible things, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ, that we are born again. Not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed. So only a sacrifice untainted by sin and judged perfect in every way could atone for transgressions committed under God's holy law. The sins that we have committed. Paul says in Romans 8.3, that God sent his own son in the likeness of flesh on account of sin he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit so let's say that God has provided the perfect sacrifice for our sin through the death of his holy sinless son he fulfilled every righteous requirement the law demanded in Jesus and, he, and Jesus declared on the cross, didn't he? It is finished. And he did this for you. In love. The son met this perfect, righteous standard as a man because we never could. And we know it was judged sufficient. Why? Because God raised him up from the dead. He raised him up bodily from the grave and he forever lives. And we can only be reconciled to God on the merit of his perfect sacrifice. We're in 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. The man, Christ Jesus. So let's see how the virgin birth testifies. Testifies to the holiness of Jesus. 
the sufficiency of his sacrifice for us. The virgin birth was foretold. And its fulfillment confirms the truth of his divinity and his humanity. And we can be confident in what that means for us as Jesus followers. We can be confident in these things. So in verse 36, back in our passage in Luke, we read, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. So Gabriel tells Mary that God had already wrought a miracle in her relative, Elizabeth. And this was a sign to Mary that God would fulfill what he had promised. But he would accomplish a greater miracle in Mary. For with God nothing will be impossible. But if you think about it, Mary found herself in quite a difficult position. With this pronouncement, it brought great blessing, but also potentially a lot of shame as well. She'd be found to be unwed but with child. Potentially facing the full consequences of the law which for adultery would be stoning. So she potentially faced death, this young Hebrew woman. And obviously Joseph, mindful of this, he feared the same outcome, and he decided he was going to put her away privately, which essentially means he was going to divorce her privately. And that was the only way the betrothal could be broken. But, and this is what he's thinking, but the angel comes to him in a dream. And the angel says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph did as the angel of the Lord was, as the angel of the Lord commanded. So if you think about it, there were so many unknowns for Mary and Joseph. But they trusted the word of God. And that's what I want us to see, how Mary's faith was emboldened by this prophetic revelation. In verse 38 she says, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So she didn't fully understand. Just like we don't often understand what God's doing. But she trusted in the word of God. And she submitted to the will of God. And she called herself a maidservant of the Lord. That's who Mary was. She wasn't the queen of heaven. She was a bondservant of her saviour. A willing bondservant of God. And she, res- she surrendered to the sovereign will of God. She trusted that God would do what he had promised. She says, let it be to me according to your word. And that's a great example of faith to us. And then we see at this point, the angel departed from her. So Gabriel went back into the presence of God. Having been the herald of this most amazing revelation. And the Bible says, doesn't it, that even the angels long to look into the things that we have now experienced through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even Gabriel, in delivering this news, longed to look into its fulfillment. Mm -hmm. But for us, seeing prophecy fulfilled, it should fill us, like I said, with a, a wonder of our salvation. And it should embolden our faith. Because with the benefit of hindsight, we're in a unique, a unique position. We can see how every book of the Old Testament anticipates the coming of a saviour and prophesies of Jesus Christ. 
the one who would fulfill God's redemptive purpose. And we see it's like a prophetic thread running all the way through the Bible. The Messiah has come. And we are blessed to live in the fulfillment of its light. Of his light. Amen. Can I ask Jess and the guys to come up? I wanted to close with that song we sung, the chorus. He who is mighty has done a great thing. Taken on flesh and conquered death's thing. I love that chorus. But as these guys get ready, let's just see how the point of revelation is always redemption. Revelation always points to redemption. Everything here points forward to God's redemptive purpose in Jesus Christ. The revelation of the Holy Child must always point to the reason for his coming. So whenever we're sharing the news of Christmas, the Holy Child, please don't leave out the reason for his coming. The redemption of God through his Saviour, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The God who saves, the God who is with us. And because of Jesus, we can trust that God will fulfill every good promise he's made in his word. Amen. So let's sing this song together. Let's stand and close with a time of, a time of worship. Let's respond to Jesus now.